We now know what happened to Jacob Wetterling, but the whereabouts of dozens of other Minnesota children still remain a mystery. 19-year-old Susan Swedell disappeared from Lake Elmo 29 years ago this week. This has never been a closed case. It's been a nightmare. It was a snowy night, only about a 15-minute ride. It's just like she fell off the face of the earth. There isn't a day that goes by that, that they don't think about Susan. And... I, I think in Susan's case, somebody knows something. Welcome to the Still Missing Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Thanert. You know, it's been an interesting few weeks since, since we talked last. Um, I think I probably thought more about her and, and that year than I probably have since... Uh, the whole thing occurred. Um, just uh, even hearing, you know, the the uh, podcast from Chris and such, it just it, it brings so much back to to what what a what a what a, what a tragic and, and 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 unbelievable set of events that the whole thing was. The unique thing about producing a podcast in the way that I have is that as the episodes have gone on. The people close to the case have each, at least from what I can see, become more empowered to take action or more bold in being open about what they have to say. Initially, perhaps the case was put out of mind for some people because their heart didn't know how to handle it, didn't know how to face it over the years. Or maybe their voice was initially stunted back in 1988 when they were in shock and didn't know what to say or what to think. And then... Over decades, their voice became iced over as they'd been forgotten after years of being largely ignored or never even asked. But most of the people I have spoken to, they've actually reached out to me multiple times to speak further on the case out of a growing desire to share more about Susan and who she was, to paint a better picture than I possibly could, and to share any type of information that could maybe be helpful. Susan's 1988 boyfriend was one of those people. What theories in your mind, or since rethinking about things and hearing information that you had not heard before based on, you know, that you were going through your own grieving process and mourning during that time, what new theories or what, what new ideas do you have? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of a unique person. Uh, I, I, I'm, 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 I have, I have very creative ideas, um, and, and, you know, so I'm, I'm both intelligent and creative at the same time, both logical and creative. Um, and I keep thinking, going back to the gas station and the fact that she seems to have known the guy. Um, I mean, I know that I, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain that the reason she brought those clothes to work that she did bring was because her and I were going to go out that night. Um, so... The fact that she had those clothes doesn't seem that odd to me. Um, she always dressed to impress. Um, that was one of the things that as she was coming into realizing who she was, that she was very, um, uh, that she, she was very consistent at is, is she was always dressing to, 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 to be beautiful, um, the best that she could. And, uh, and so to to think that she had that outfit with her didn't really surprise me. The fact that she changed into it, knowing the weather conditions, tells me that 
she was intending to actually see somebody at that point. Um, she, she didn't get dressed into a skirt to go home. Um, so whether she had seen this person before she went home or the one thing that went through my mind is, is, is this, this stripper guy who she knew it from the mall there, this Dale, I think his name was. Um, and I maybe miss, I, I, please don't quote me on the name because that may be the wrong name. Um, but this, this stripper guy that she seemed very excited about, um, maybe this was, maybe the plan was at least her, that he told her she, he was going to go with her to her house to meet her family finally. Um, but if he was a person of questionable means uh, of questionable intent, um, then maybe, you know, that would explain why she was so trusting and, and why she would leave some things in her car, um, thinking that they were going to her house, um, anyways. So the car breaks down on the way, no big deal. We'll come get it in the morning. Um, we're still going to my house. So not, not so concerned for the things that she left behind that, um, would be very difficult to replace at that time. It's not like we had one hour, um, eyeglasses back then. Um, it took, it took week or weeks to get eyeglasses back in, back in those days. Um, a driver's license was the only ID you really had. Um, you didn't carry around, you didn't have tons of credit cards or other IDs with you. Um, it wasn't as easy to, it wasn't easy to find out who somebody was at the time if they did not have their ID. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't cell phones and, and internet and all that to, to look up information on people. So that would be your only means of identification at the time. Um, so it keeps, you know, whether it was, uh, a, I'm going to go hang out with you opportunity or let's go meet my family or I'm just sick of my life sort of deal. You know, we've talked about before where if she was running away, it would have been sort of a, it, it wasn't very well planned if, it, if that was the case. Um, because it doesn't seem like she had the things with her she would have needed to have survived very long as, as a runaway. You know, she had paycheck waiting for her. She had, um, she had no clothes, um, no real clothes, no, no glasses, no, the, you know, the things, the things that you need to, to, to be away for an extended period of time. Um, and then the one thing that the police never reported that I talked about a little bit was the fact that my house was robbed um, while I while we were up at the resort. Um, so somebody who knew we weren't in town, very easy to figure out. Though I mean, it, any 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 novice burglar could probably understand if nobody was home on the weekends, and that was a pattern. But that that was like a week later, um, and the things they took were not valuable things. They were. They were, they were, one thing my, my mother had mentioned that I didn't realize um, or remember was that a lot of what they took was like women, women's clothes. Um, 
And so they never made the correlation between that or never knew the correlation between that. Um, nobody ever really talked to me about it. Um, you know, would the clothes have been the size for Susan? Like, you know, what were they petite clothes? I don't know whose clothes they were, whether they were your mom's. They would have been, they would have been my mother's. Um, my mother was like five, four, five, five. Um, um, I, I would say she was petite. She was definitely larger than Sue, but she wasn't at that point in time. Um, I don't remember her, her being, um, being, you know, anything but thin. Um, so, it, you know, definitely in the same range of, of what could, uh, constitute, you know, fit, fitting, fitting Susan if, if she was desperate. Um, probably not Susan's style. <laughs> um, but uh, offering warmth or even the potential for for trade to to be able to to take these things and and bring them to a, some sort of a boutique and and trade them for other things. Do you have any thoughts on how somebody would have entered your home at that time? Oh, we know where they came in. Um, they they came in. We had a. At that point in time, we had a very poorly secured house um, in North East Minneapolis, which were all older homes, where you have like a uh, a uh, wet uh, like a uh, what do you call it a wet room or a a, a mud room um, before the locked door. So you have a like a screen door, and then you have a and then you have a, a the mud room, and then you have your your locked back door to the house. Um, and everybody entered the house pretty much through the back door, and the robbery did occur through the back through the back door. Um, they came through the backyard. We we saw they we saw the 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 footprints, and looked like some sort of a sled, which we we did have things like sleds on the house and stuff um, going through the backyard um, over a kind of a dilapidated fence. Um, into the na- and through the neighbor's yard, so they were able to see the path that they had taken because there was fresh snow, um, and and that they had done everything through the back door. Um, Did they break the door? Yeah. So I mean, they 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 would have had forever in a enclosed environment that would have been you know unable to be viewed by neighbors to 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 work on that door all they wanted. Um, not that, not that locks were necessarily, you know, are necessarily all that substantial. Once, you know, if they, if I remember right, they, they don't think that, they don't think they would have had any trouble in that door at the time, um, breaking through a lock. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't like the substantial doors that people put in for security nowadays. Um, it was just a wood door. Um, I know I, I doubt it even had steel or, or, or any of the, you know, the super, um, you know, scientific sort of materials that they put into these doors today. Um, and so at that time, was your thought or your family's thought that it was Susan or that it was somebody that had been with her? I, 
only recall one time my mom asking that question. Um, I don't remember ever in my own mind formulating that at that time, um, formulating that conclusion. It's only in hindsight and thinking about it later, like literally recently, um, where I put these things together. Um, I, 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 you know, after this all happened, I wasn't in my right mind myself. I'm, I was, I was, I was dealing with my own severe depression and, and health issues based on it. I, I wasn't sleeping or eating or, um, you know, it was, it was pretty tragic on everybody. And, and I was pretty close with the family. And, and even today, you know, I've, I've spoke to the family recently and, and, and so, it, it was it was it was a tragedy that was occurring, and all this other stuff was sort of happening in the background, and and I don't think anybody was in a place at that point in time to put things together. None of us were 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 in our fully functional logical minds at the time. Um, we were all very emotional. And it seems to me that one of the most unfortunate things is that. While that's happening, which is, you know, obviously completely normal, you're hoping that police are doing their jobs. Um, but in this instance, that may not have been the case. And, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to accuse anybody. I don't want to defend anybody either. Um, very difficult situation. Um, she's old enough to be a runaway. Um, we didn't know till the next day that something something occurred um i mean we knew she was missing we thought she broke down and was trying to walk home i mean our our fears were 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 the ditches and the fields um between the gas station and the house um i mean i remember driving over there at at, I mean, it had to be four in the morning, sometime like that, four or five in the morning. Um, the next day is when that when I got into my car and, and, and drove through the things that finally cleared up enough. And our fears were, okay, we need to go, we need to go search these ditches when she's, you know, she's between the car and house. Um, it wasn't until they actually got to interview the gas station attendant the next day and we started, people started coming out of the woodworks like this Dan, I think his name was Dan. Um, this guy from Bumpers, um, the, the, the guy that was uh, living out in uh, Little Canada or whatever. Um, the people like that started coming out of the woodwork. Um, and, and, and so, I'm not sure that people were able to put together that, that something tragic had happened as opposed to somebody just going away for a little while, um, at least with the authorities um, at first. And so I don't think that they ever got the right forensics. I don't think they ever went and took fingerprints on the car and, and it, before everything was completely contaminated by mechanics and all that. Um, I just, I, it's hard, it's hard to know what, what their, what, what their processes and methods 
were for the situation based on the information they had. And then things that would unfold a week later or days later, um, you know, may say, well, we need, you know, we need a little more um, forensic information. I mean, it would have been interesting to, if they would have got some from when somebody was supposedly in the, in, in the Swiddell house, um, that day after, two days after the disappearance, um, but you know, there was, I think, I think, I think there was a lot of confusion at that time. So, so who did their job, who didn't do their job, um, you know, who's, who's failing and who's succeeding. Um, it, it's, it's just one of those things where I don't think all the information was there to, to say that something really bad had happened yet. Um, so I can see how balls would have been dropped um, until it was too late to, you know, to, 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 to get the information that, that we, that people should have taken or we should have gotten or paid more attention to at the beginning. It seems to me that over time, over the past 30 years, each person close to the case has latched on to a particular narrative about what happened, or at least the one that they are most inclined to believe based on how they knew Susan and the context surrounding their relationship with her. Susan's 1988 boyfriend is not the only one who did this. He simply happened to have the theory that we least wanted to accept, that she ran away. But we have similarly coined her in many ways. The girl on the chat lines, the girl at the bumpers club, the girl with the post-it notes beside her bed. Then we have her other boyfriend, who showed up the following day after her disappearance, and the stripper, Dale. Then on the other hand, we have the vulnerable, naive Susan who attended church, was very quiet, unpopular at school, and close to a few nerdy friends and her sister. We, and really, I should be saying I, because I don't know exactly what you've done in your mind, but I guess I've been trying to form a picture of her personality and identify a way in which she might make decisions, based on everything that I hear. I guess it's been an attempt to create some type of amateur psychological workup in hopes that I can determine more clearly how she would have made decisions to understand who it possibly could have been that she willingly got into a car, but then was never seen again. Amateur, convoluted, far-reaching? For sure. This method, these tactics, would likely qualify as some of the least supported possible detective work or methods known to man. So, I did, of course, for that reason, ask to interview the current cold case unit regarding some of the actual known facts about the case. They were gracious enough to allow this, and they also gave me a Washington County coffee mug, which I very much appreciated, and I use it every day. So here are some of the facts. What are the known events that occurred on January 19, 1988, beginning at the beginning of the day, leading up to Susan's arrival at the gas station? Want me to feel this, Troy, or do you want to? Yeah, no, so um, from what we know, um, there's a little discrepancy in uh, talking to the Swiddells about who called who. But the information that we have initially and after is that, um, and corrected by uh, the mother, Kathy, is that uh, Susan was at work and it, there was some uh, weather event, some snow. And Kathy said that she actually had called Susan, um, worried about the, the weather and talked to her about the weather. And then they had talked about the route home and whatnot. Initially, the information was that 
correct me if I'm wrong, guys, that Susan had called Kathy, but then uh, years later, Kathy said that she had called Susan. So just something uh, something to know. Um, we got a call from the sheriff's office at 11 o'clock at night on the 19th. Um, and then that was reported that the phone call happened about 9.15, was it? I believe 9.15 um, on the 19th that um, she was going to come home. Um, and then we responded to that. Um, the missing person report wasn't filed until 3.30 in the afternoon the next day. But the information we got uh, was that this person at the KOL station at Five and Manning um, reports that a light-colored older model full-size car um, had followed um, this uh, Swedell vehicle into the lot. And there was a conversation for possibly 15 minutes um, with a male that was described as six foot to six foot two inches tall, slim, long, sandy brown hair. Um, the information at the time from the clerk was that um, Susan came into the establishment, mentioned something about car problems, leaving her car, and that uh, the clerk said that they that she could. However, she had to park it somewhere else due to plowing. And then um, the information was that Susan got into this vehicle um, with this individual, and they left west on Highway 5. Um, one thing in particular, I was wondering if you could clarify what specifically happened with the car and whether it was towed or driven from the gas station to um, the Swiddell home. So, go ahead, Blake. Yeah, the car was actually located by the deputy responding that night um, to the Swiddell household at 11 o'clock. So the car was taken? The car was, the, no, the car was seen at the gas station at that time okay. that night. The next morning at 7.20, Kathy reported going over to the gas station, talking to the clerk, and then picking up the car herself and, and driving home. Okay. And then from what I've heard, and then it then sat at the house for five days? Yeah, the information we have is on the 24th um, that um, Kathy reports that she had car problems with it. That was when it was discovered. Uh, from everything, from my, there wasn't. It wasn't clear on how it was towed. Uh, if it was towed to that Lake Mall repair on Five and Manning, or how it really got there, that was never really clear. And then, us. did you guys ever get to see the like the car, the report of what the mechanic had reported, or this was just word of mouth from Kathy. Uh, I don't know if the vehicle, was, to my knowledge, was never inspected by us, by the sheriff's office at the time. What do what does what do the original reports say about the incident where someone had entered the Swiddell home a few days after the disappearance? And actually, if you could clarify, how many days after? So, from my notes on the twenty sixth, um, it was reported that um, Christine got home and noticed that the key was not in the same location, um, and was able to find it and enter the house. And there were snack items, dirty dishes um, in the sink. And then she, what she described as this sweet smell that later on people, in talking to people, she thought might've been marijuana. Um, so she felt that obviously somebody was in the home and reported that, to, called her mother and reported that to her mother. And then 
reported to the sheriff's office. Did they report that right away after it happened? I believe it was right away, yeah. What date was the original police report taken? Uh, January 20th at 3.30 was when the missing persons report um, was filed. Um, it sounds like uh, Kathy report called in at 4.15 in the morning. Does that sound correct? Yeah, the original, <clears throat> the first call to the police was from Kathy asking them to check the ditches and the roadways from Kmart to home, home to see if she had gone off the road or something like that had happened. When they did that, that's when they found the car at the gas station. And then after that is what, then they said, well, we need to do a missing persons report. She, her car has been found. She's not here. So that's what kind of led up to that delay in the, the missing persons report due to the weather. Did you guys, I'd heard from someone that after that, there were the fields between where the Swedell home was and the gas station were searched in some capacity. I'm wondering whether that was the sheriff's office or whether that was the family. You know, the reports don't reflect the areas that were checked by patrol, but obviously, you know, if that was the concern that night, patrol officers would have checked the roads and the ditches and whatnot. But as far as field searches, there's nothing documented in the reports as far as that. Does... The Washington County Sheriff's Office currently believe that Susan ran away, or is the position that Susan was abducted on January 19th, 1988? Well, we don't have information really of either. So what we have is uh, an eyewitness account that places Susan getting into a car, which appeared to be voluntarily. So basically what we just have is a missing person. We have no reason to believe that... um, or there's no evidence that we have that she got into the car involuntarily, but we can't even say that. Um, it's just an eyewitness account. So we're treated it from day one as a, as a missing person and still do to this day. Does the passage of time and the length of time make you think any particular way about what happened? You know, I, and that's an interesting question because we all have, you know, theories. Everyone that listens to this has theories of what happened. So we would only just be coming up with theories. But obviously the length of time that's passed from that day till now leads us to believe that something something happened. Um, you know, we can't say for sure what it is. So it's kind of difficult to answer that. But again, we look at it as a missing person until we have evidence to say otherwise. Would you be able to speak a little bit to what your perspective and what you knew about Susan's life prior to her disappearance? Yeah. I mean, I can go all the way back to when we met. Um, I, so my grandfather's place up on, up on Mille Lacs Lake is like kitty corner from, uh, from what was at the time. I think it still is cabin for the family of the Swiddells. Um, I know that Chrissy and them don't go up there anymore. Um, but I remember uh, seeing a couple of uh, you know, 
15-year-old boy at the time, um, a, cu- a couple of uh, pretty girls hanging out. And so I'm driving, <laughs> I was driving around in my go-kart trying to get their attention um, back and forth and back and forth. We had a little go-kart. And uh, finally, I got uh, Susan to jump on the go-kart. We went for a go-kart ride and we hung out for the day and just kind of get to know her. She was, uh, she was a college student at the time, 18 years old. She was a college student, you know, 15-year-old boy going absolutely gaga over the fact that I'm talking to this college student. And uh, she was very sweet. Um, and, and, but also um, she, she was, she was, um, I, I think she, the the way that I've heard it put is she knew what she wanted and she, and she, and she went for it. And, and that at the point in time was me. Um, somehow I, I, I acquired the, the adore or the, the fancy of, of, of Sue. Um, and so she was not letting Chris and I talk at all. Um, and Chris was my age. She was, she was, she was really doing her best to, uh, to steal the spotlight. And, and so her and I started seeing each other and dating. Um, this was in, uh, February, March, about March, April. Um, so April was about the time we started dating. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I, I was 15 at the time, so we didn't get to see each other a lot. She was away at college when, um, but she was sweet, very, very smart. And, and I can't tell you if that's, you know, comparative because I'm, you know, much more, much, much younger and, and obviously not in college. Um, but she was very, very smart, um, very artistic. Um, I just, the one thing I remember when I think back on, on Sue was how artistic she was, um, she would, when young people back in those days would, would write letters to each other during the day or whatnot. There wasn't texts or emails. Um, and her, her letters always had drawings or, or sparkles or, um, you know, those, uh, what are they called? Little hearts and, and such, uh, um, trying to trying to remember you know made out of like plastic or paper or tinsel mm-hmm. um so everything she did was very artistic and, and and pretty and and moving um she just she had a way to she she had a way of making the people around her feel very warm and welcome and special um so she, every day, I, I think every day that I knew her, she would write something or or put something together to to take away a, a, some some thoughts or some some feelings from from that day from her. Um, and that time from from. June, or I'm sorry, not June, um, April to, to May when I, when I actually turned 16 and finally got my license. And then we started spending a lot more time together, um, because that distance became very easy. Um, 
that's when I started to really get to know her. Um, and she was, as Chris probably has stated, naive, um, kind of, uh, uh, relationship. She was, she was, she, I know she had had some boyfriends in the past, but she, she wasn't super mature. Um, I at 16 years old had probably more relationship experience than she had at, at, at 18, 19. Um, and so it was sort of, it was sort of a first love sort of thing for her. Um, and she was, all I can say is remarkable. Um, very um, trusting, very caring, very, very authentic. Um, you know, as, as as people get older, I think they become a little more jaded, a little more protective. Um, there was none of that. Um, everything was very open, very honest. Um, but she was. I, I remember going to visit her at, at university and she was so active um, with other friends around and, and, and other people. And we would go hang out with, uh, with, with some of her friends. I, I don't remember any of them. They probably don't remember a lot about me. I don't think we ever really hung out with the same ones all the time. She just had that many people around her. People gravitated to her. Um, and, Then I remember that kind of going into the summer, um, which was fantastic. I mean, the sum, that summer was the summer that my family had bought our resort. Um, they actually bought it in, in April as well. By the time Sue and I started dating um, up on Mille Lacs Lake where we, were, we had met, but uh, about 100 miles north of town. And so at that point in time, I wasn't really required to, to, to be up there all the time in the summer. Um, and so Sue and I got to hang out every day, just about. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was one of those things where she was at her mother's house now in Elk River. I was at, of course, my mother's house because I was a kid, um, in Northeast Minneapolis and she would come either towards Northeast or I would go down towards Elk River or we would meet in the middle just about every day. Um, and these would consist of, you know, eating, shopping, going to movies, um, on the weekends, um, that, 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 that damn bumpers place. (laughs) Where is that located or where was it located? Um, that was off of White Bear Avenue and, or I think, I think they call that 61 there. Um, and right up by, is it Freeway Ford? So you've got the White Bear Ford, um, there. So if you, if you, if you go 694 and you go into 61 or White Bear Avenue, um, north, there's like car dealerships. Well, just south of White Bear Ford, um, on the, um, west side of the road, um, there was a, uh, a dance club, um, 
it was a it was a, an all ages sort of thing. I don't think they served any alcohol. Um, and uh, it was it was right there. It was, it was called Bumpers. Um, I think I think they also were uh, a pool hall. That's 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 the name Bumpers. Um, and so I think that at night they would turn it into the dance club, or maybe only on Thursday, Friday night. Um, and, and that was one of those places that uh, that that we would go because it was it was it was a place where Sue, being of age, and and me being underage, could hang out together. Um, you know, otherwise the clubs were pretty much you know places I couldn't get into or the places that I could go were, were not even my, even my school dances and stuff. Um, they wouldn't let her in because she was an adult and didn't go to the school. Um, and so the bumpers, bumpers was a place that we went to in the summer, starting late summer, I think. Um, and and it wasn't every weekend because I had to I had to go work some weekends. But uh, but it but it was a place that she really enjoyed. Um, you know, like I said, when I think about Sue, I think about her dancing. <laughs> um, she was she was hilarious. She could she she could dance all those penis dances and the and the it's a Merry Christmas Charlie Brown. She could dance every character's role in that, um, and just has such a good time showing showing that off. just uh, occurred to me, so our, our junior year, um, that's when I finalized my plans to study in Spain during my senior year. And at some point during that year, Sue suddenly decided that she'd had enough of Spanish and she started taking French. And I just remember I was really taken aback because we'd been Spanish class buddies since eighth grade, you know, and she had never experienced or expressed um any interest in French. So I admit that I was a little hurt and confused by it. Um, and then she started telling me how she was going to go study abroad in Japan the next year. And she was going to stay with the family of Junich, um, who was a Japanese exchange student um, that we knew through AFS club. And Sue actually ended up going to junior prom with him. Um, but she, she talked about it like it was a done deal. But to me, it, it just seemed really pretty far-fetched, and I had no idea how she was going to pull it off or even really whether to take it seriously. Um, now, just recently I spoke with another good friend from that era, and he remembers me telling him at length that I was worried about Sue, uh, that she was acting strange, and... I know that Sue and I had some other friction that year as well. Um, I don't remember the details, just that it seemed to get more frequent as the year went on, and I kind of started pulling away. Um, but what I didn't understand back then uh, was that she was quite hurt that I was leaving for a year, and she was also jealous, which totally makes sense in retrospect, and it's something that she admitted to me uh, the last time I saw her, I, mean, I, I probably would have felt the same way in her shoes, but I was an immature 16-year-old, and frankly, I was incapable of putting myself in her shoes um, at that time. Um, but I mean, we were just kids, and I kind of think she was trying to make me feel the way she felt 
by dropping Spanish, uh, which was a really important connection we shared, and the language of the place I was going to, um, and also talking about, you know, going to Japan and studying there. But I looked back uh, at my yearbook from junior year, and there she wrote that she was really glad that I had been accepted to stay in Spain, you know, and she hoped I would have a wonderful time. So um, did she go to Japan? Of course not. But um, I think she was obviously trying to cope with her hurt feelings, kind of swaying back and forth between reactions. And um, it just, all of a sudden, it really made me think of the things she was doing prior to her disappearance, you know, like calling chat lines and clubbing and getting involved with various, whatever you want to call them, fast guys who really didn't, don't seem her type. Um, Because if she wasn't getting what she needed from her relationship with her boyfriend, you know, who was younger... Um, I could see her going back and forth, on again, off again, and venturing out in other directions for what she was looking for. Um, And in her mind, maybe showing him that she could manage just fine with other guys who actually appreciated her, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe even, you know, make him jealous of her new guy friends. And she could have been rebelling against expectations, too. But I just don't think that she was truly prepared for what she might find in those other directions. And, you know, it'd be pretty easy for her to be deceived by somebody like that. I personally don't think her personality would have changed that much, that she would have been able to navigate well in that world of fast crowds and chat line acquaintances, you know, club guys and strippers and who knows who else. Um, But especially if she was also suffering from depression, she could have easily been talked or or even bullied into things by these guys. Um, And then, you know, I think back on that last time I saw her uh, in fall, uh, fall 1987, it was after church. What I've carried with me has been primarily this sense of our having made peace with one another. Um, because she acknowledged her behavior our junior year. She had worked through her feelings, she said, and basically had forgiven me for, for pulling away and leaving. And so that's why it means so much to me that we were able to connect that day. But when I started to examine that conversation more closely um, over the past few weeks, I distinctly remember her being quite subdued and and cool, like saying that she was doing much better, but not really expressing it with her body language or her manner. Um, so she was seated. She was seated in the church narthex in the back of the church when I came out after the church service that day, and I don't think she actually ever got up to interact with me. Um, I remember feeling awkward. Like, you know, we were talking about putting things behind us and um, kind of forgiving each other for our mutual behavior. But there was not this kind of stand up and hug moment, which, you know, I would, I kind of would expect looking back. She just seemed really subdued is, is the best word I can think of. Um 
And so I felt awkward. I, I was certainly left with a feeling like there were things unsaid, um, kind of incompleteness. And to this day, I, I really wonder what I would have learned if I'd pursued that conversation further. Um, I, I still, to this day, I wish I'd asked. Um, and that's, that's kind of been part of the, the guilt that I have carried with me through the years. Um, you know, not, not pursuing that further, not asking her what was going on, how she had been, what she was doing. Um, you know, and the other thing that I was thinking about, um, you know, was, was she capable of going off like that? What I can say is that when we were hanging out at her house, uh, when we were just really close friends, we often would hang out, you know, Chris, her, her little sister would, would be there. And I remember thinking, you know, why are we hanging out with her little sister? I didn't want to hang out with my little brother <laughs> at that point. So I couldn't understand that, why we were hanging out with, with her little sister as well. And I didn't understand until only recently, you know, why they were so close. But I, I, I knew that they were really close. And I, and I, I remember thinking, you know, it was kind of odd how close they were, but, but they were so close. And it's it's just hard to believe that she wouldn't somehow reach out to her sister, you know? I'm a clinical psychologist. I work in a large state psychiatric hospital with inpatient uh, people with chronic mental illness who have been court committed for treatment. And... Um, but when I was in my graduate studies at Pepperdine, I did my dissertation research. I did a qualitative study on ambiguous loss and, and specifically the sibling experience of ambiguous loss because the few studies that have been done on families with missing children um, are focused on the parents and the siblings just sort of disappear. And that's what happens in reality, too. They kind of disappear. And it's really sad because... Like I mentioned earlier, not only have they lost a sibling, a lot of times they lose their parents. Parents can become super focused on changing legislation or changing laws or the investigative process. And so the, the remaining kid or kids are kind of lost in the shuffle a lot of times. And they basically can, in a way, lose the entire family that they once knew. I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Von Sur who's one of the few people in the United States who have done research on the concept of ambiguous loss and missing people. If you aren't familiar with that phraseology, here's Dr. Von Sir. Okay, well, it was first identified by Pauline Boss in the 1974 study she did. Uh, she was researching families of soldiers that were uh, missing in action in Vietnam. And what she basically came up with is that there are two kinds of ambiguous loss. One is something that we're sort of all more familiar with, which is psychological absence. When a person is physically present, but for some reason they're psychologically absent, absent maybe due to chronic mental illness, addiction, Alzheimer's or some sort of dementia, severe head injury, or even 
less traumatic issues such as a workaholic parent or a spouse. Okay, but then this other kind of ambiguous loss, which is basically an uncertain loss or an, a, a loss with without without clear boundaries, is when there's someone who is physically absent um, but psychologically present. So that's like in the case of someone who is a missing person, MIA soldiers, they're kept psychologically present by family members due to not knowing what's happened to them, whether they're still alive, etc. So ambiguous loss is automatically a more complicated loss because it's not clearly defined, and so there aren't really established ways of grieving it or even addressing it socially or within family systems. What, how would you describe the emotional and physical experience of an ambiguous loss? It's a trauma, basically. So it's very psychologically stressful. When you think about experiencing a loss such as a death, there are established phases. Now, those phases have been rearranged and, and seen as more fluid lately, which I think is good. But basically, you have a process that you go through, and there are rituals associated with it, right? Like a like a funeral, a memorial service, uh, community support, that kind of thing. With an ambiguous loss, it's a non-defined loss. There's not clarity about what's happened, if the person is going to be found or not, if they're going to come back or not. So in families with someone who's missing, all kinds of things can happen to maintain the psychological presence, which complicates the grieving process. Like they'll maintain a bedroom or they'll still buy holiday and birthday gifts, things like this. It's very psychologically stressful for family members. And it it almost becomes like a post-traumatic stress type of response, depression, anxiety. But when you think about it, in PTSD, there's a traumatic event, right? And and sometimes that's re-experienced with nightmares, flashbacks. But with an ambiguous loss, the event is continually experienced. So think about how traumatic that is because those are extended periods of denial, shock, anger disbelief, bargaining, there can be role confusion. Here's this missing person in the family system. Sometimes people take over that person's role or they aren't sure what their role is anymore. Hope and hopelessness, going back and forth, guilt, panic, they all are happening all the time. It's incredibly stressful. And um, just off the cuff, so when you said, when you mentioned if it's not an MBUS loss, there's there's avenues of support that are kind of built in already in society. Um, with Susan's case, with it having, you know, essentially been ignored by the public for 30 years, does that compound the ambiguous loss for the family? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, that's some of what my research um, uh, led to was a conclusion that there are certain things that can happen that can help people move through and within dealing with ambiguous loss. And one of those factors is support. So family and community support play a huge role, role rather. Family and community support play a huge role in how someone experiences and moves through an ambiguous loss. Obviously, if families are fractured before the loss, they're going to become more fractured after. If families are pretty stable 
and can pull together, that makes a big difference. And then when you're talking about the community support, a lot more community support happens when there's a lot of media attention. Media attention draws with it uh, support and outreach, more connection with others that are experiencing a similar type of loss. So when that media support is absent, it, it negatively affects community support. And then if you don't have family support, you're you're pretty you're pretty alone in the in the experience. How does an ambiguous loss change um, life for somebody such as Christine and her mother as the years pass on? So for Christine, she was only 16, and she and her sister were very close. So she went through a lot of things that many people go through with this kind of a loss, which is role confusion. What's my role in the family now? I'm the only child present. Do I take over my sister's role? Do I maintain my own? Do I try to do both? A lot of times, kids become the caretaker of their parents, which I think Christine has also filled that role as, as taking care of her parents. Kids tend to realize that they don't want to cause their parent any more stress or grief. And they've also, in some ways, lost their parent because their parent can become so focused on the child that's missing that they, they aren't able to give the usual resources and attention to the child that's still there. Um, the feelings of helplessness and hopelessness can really take a toll. A lot of, a lot of people develop things like eating disorders to regain some sense of control in their environment. Of course, depression and anxiety, PTSD, isolation, withdrawal. Um, and the more those things, those, those coping mechanisms continue, those maladaptive coping mechanisms continue, the more people get rather stuck in that rut. It's a frozen grief, it's a frozen grief, uh, situation. You're frozen in this grieving state and, and, not only do you have the depression and anxiety, but a lot of somatic complaints can develop, like migraines or digestive issues, pain issues, because your grief is prolonged indefinitely. There's no end in sight. And so the normal coping resources that people use, those become overtaxed. So then people start using dysfunctional stress management strategies, isolation, drugs and alcohol, eating disorders, that kind of thing. So... It really is a tough experience for anyone to go through and experience because it's just there's no end in sight. So it's just is it just like a constant state of grieving essentially, but just for years on end with no end in sight. Exactly, because how does someone uh, in 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 traditional uh, stages of grief they always seem to end with the the resolution, the acceptance. That's that's kind of going by the wayside, which is good because a lot of people say, you know, this is not acceptable. I can't accept this. This is, they think acceptance means they're okay with it. And of course, people don't usually become okay with a loss of great magnitude. But what people do do when they're dealing with the death of a loved one is they figure out eventually a way to live within their new reality, right? So they have this new reality that after they're grieving process has gone through a lot of different stages, depending on however long that might take a person, eventually they figure out how to navigate their new reality without that person. With ambiguous loss, they can't really get to that place because they don't know what the reality is. They don't know if the person's going to come back. They don't, there's so many unanswered questions. There's 
not a death certificate. There's not a, a grave site. There's not a memorial service. There's constant, never-ending questions. And then you have these stories in the media of sometimes people being found after 10 years, 20 years. And that just reignites all that hope and maybe and what-if kind of feeling that continues to keep this this limbo going. One of the things that my limited research shows is that sometimes being able to achieve a stable frame of mind about the loss can really help, meaning that rather than continually, continually vacillating between cycles of hopefulness and hopelessness, deciding to remain in a hopeful state of mind can make a big difference, as well as the accepting of not the loss, but the acceptance of not knowing can really help someone move through this. It's it's complicated, it's difficult, but the people that have accepted the not knowing, the ambiguity, and have been able to maintain hope and, and avoid that continual cycle, exhausting cycle of vacillating between hopelessness and hopefulness, tend to do better. Hmm. And those sound like two very tough things to accomplish psychologically. Um, Absolutely, which is where the the family support, community support, media attention, those can all help because that helps people feel like there's still something to go forward with. When you're isolated from family, when you don't have community support and or media attention, that isolation just entrenches a lot of the hopelessness and the depression and anxiety, and it's really hard to achieve a more stable frame of mind. In this kind of scenario where there's been an individual missing for 30 years, does a family member ever mentally stop searching even as those years and decades pass? Well, that is a tough question. It's a really individual question. Um, the people that I contacted with my research, they don't ever, they've never stopped. But of course, I haven't spoken with everyone. I haven't talked to all family members. I think it's such an individual process that that's a hard question to answer. But I think the, the intuitive short answer is no. <laughs> because how, how could, I mean, they might stop, they might give up hope. But I don't think people can, I, I think it's really hard for people to give up wanting to know. The not knowing is the hardest. The not knowing is what makes ambiguous loss one of the most difficult losses to experience because there's just no resolve. There's no resolution. It does seem really incredible to me. Like, I generally consider myself fairly, you know, empathetic or understanding person, but it does seem to be one of those things that is difficult to even put yourself in those shoes. You just can't comprehend what that experience must be. So what, from your, um, from your research and from your expertise, what's the best ways to communicate and be there for people like Christine and her mother who have had longstanding ambiguous loss kind of consume their lives? Again, that's a complicated question with, probably a million different answers, but there's definitely things not to do. Um, as in any kind of loss or experience that someone is having, you don't, you don't want to say, I know how you feel. <laughs> you don't want to say um, that because, of course, like you just said, there's no way of even comprehending how that must feel. 
it's just it's why I started doing my my dissertation on this subject because I can't I could not comprehend how people can live with that kind of ambiguity, that kind of not knowing. And I wanted to try to examine not only how do people cope with that, but what are some ways, what are some factors that can be helpful? I think just checking in and asking someone how they're doing, asking people what they need, ask them what they need, ask people what you can do to help um, can make a big difference, especially when there's not the level of community and, and media and family support that, that others can have that make it easier. Trying to help someone come out of that isolation can make a difference. And that would make sense just based on my conversations with Christine. Like, um, when she'd say to me that one of the hardest things was when people just wouldn't say anything to them at all. It was just silence. Um, you know, saying, yeah, like, because you know what? There's an implication in that, which is either I'm afraid to, for a lot of people, I'm afraid to bring it up because I don't know what to say. But then there's also a lot of judgment that can be brought from people not saying anything or being impatient, like, you should be over this by now. Why don't you get over this? It's been 10 years. It's been 20 years. It's been 30 years. Get over it. Which, of course, isn't for anyone to tell <laughs> anyone how to, how to deal with or get over anything. But especially in a loss like this, again, with not knowing, there is no getting over. Just like it with a death, there's really not a getting over. There's a learning to live with a new reality. But in this case, they don't even know what the reality is. Do you guys still think that this can be solved? Yes. I'm very certain that can be solved. How does it, how do you solve a case this old with like no evidence? It's difficult. I mean, we've had many discussions about that. Something like that happening now um, would be completely different than something happening in, back in the late 80s with technology. Um, not to say that a crime like that couldn't happen or uh, missing persons couldn't happen, but um, we would have had a lot more to go on. So we're working back on what took place in, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So it's kind of difficult as far as, um, you know, evidentiary stuff. Um, so all we can do is, is go back and look at the information we have, um, try to figure out where people are. Um, passing of time is also a problem with memories. Um, including if you've talked with Swedells, that they say the same thing. You know, it happened so long ago that sometimes, you know, you don't get the same information. The good example was this, the clerk. Um, you know, we we took the information that she gave in close proximity to the event as probably the most valuable information. Um, years later, um, you know, that event that night probably wasn't significant to her that night, other than you know what she had said about the way she was dressed. Um, and that somebody asked her a question about putting a car there, but if it would have been a regular gas attempt or a regular somebody coming in there, you wouldn't have thought it was any big deal. So um, that information that we took that, that the sheriff, the sheriff's deputies took that night, we take um, as the most relevant information. Now, 10 years later, you know, her memory is different. I mean, at first she thought it happened in the summer. Um, now you talk to her again and, you know, there's some indication that she doesn't even think Susan might have come in and then that the guy came in. So um, time is kind of our enemy in that regard as well. But it's totally solvable in the fact that there's a person that reported that she got into a car with. 
Um, so we have something to go on. So is that person um, the suspect? I mean, we just want to talk to that person. I mean, if we can find that person, then that'll lead us to, you know, our next, More people. our next people that we need to talk to. So, you know, that's kind of what we're going on is um, we just want to talk to everybody and turn over every stone to try to see if, we can put those pieces together more than they were now because we really don't have a lot. And you know that from looking into it, it's tough. It's uh, it's tough, but, but it is solvable just because somebody knows something. When I was at the walk, I was thinking of all the other families. That's why there were some families there and I had those families walking up in front alongside my family. So this is really we got to continue on and getting all those all those faces out there and their stories. So it just magnifies it again. So hopefully this is just the start of it. But I just want everybody to know that everybody's doing the best they can with Sue's case. And I just really, I really appreciate all their support and their help and really want to keep those listeners with me. And is there a place that you, that those listeners can continue the conversation with you? Yes, there's actually a Facebook page that I have created, and I know you will be putting the link up. Um, it's going to be a page dedicated to Sue, but it's also going to be dedicated to, uh, I kind of want to keep the focus on teenagers, because teenagers are really, I mean, I'm I'm looking at articles right now, and it's still is in a place that they are still looked at as runaways. And I would like to be able to change or improve that somehow for law enforcement to be taking that much more seriously. I don't want any any family to go through what we went through with Sue because we knew Sue the best. And when law enforcement comes in, they see the age, and they just think, okay, she just went off for a few days. Well, it's 30 years later. She's, you know, I don't want any other family to go through that. I mean, Christine's life was put on hold, you know, at the age of 16. It just froze, like this frozen grief. Her life and her processes and her moving through her life kind of froze um, from fear, paralyzed by fear and anxiety and not knowing and the loss of her sister who she's very close with. I mean, all of these things combined can just freeze a person and, and she, her life has been irrevocably changed. I mean, she's not the person she once was. How do you think that a person can move forward? Like how, how could she move forward? You know, in the last 10 years, she's made a lot of forward movement. She's gone to school. She's reached out to People, she's developed interests like whale watching and that bring her to uh, the West Coast here in the Seattle and uh, Pacific Northwest. So she, she takes trips. She meets people. She's developed connections with people and developed her interests, and that's huge for her because for a long time she was not doing any of that. Um, so I think, you know, finding ways to break out of that isolation, managing your depression and your anxiety, whether that's, you know, seeing a counselor, a therapist, getting medication, a combination of all of the above, 
and, and, and seeking out support. I know that Christine did have um, a connection with the Wetterlings, who went through a loss as well, an ambiguous loss. And just having a connection with people that can understand the type of loss you're dealing with can be hugely beneficial. So right after Sheriff Starry was appointed as interim sheriff after Sheriff Hutton left, uh, shortly after that I was moved into the investigations commander and was approached by him and um, Chief Deputy Mueller about forming a cold case group. Um, just because in the past we've all looked at these cases. Um, Susan's case has always been assigned to a detective since I've been in investigations since 06. Um, it's always been assigned to someone and then they work that case as they can. But we wanted to have a little different approach about how we look at cases instead of one person just having the responsibility of only a cold case. We wanted to dedicate a little bit more time and resources. So when the uh, group was developed, we decided, you know, who's going to be on that group. And, you know, obviously an analyst, lead detective. Um, we have the a BCA agent involved with it along with the, the county attorney we were looking for a county attorney but we got the county attorney which is nice and then uh mike and i just to look at it so being the 30th anniversary and one of those cases that everyone up here has touched in one way or another um we decided that that was the first case we were going to look at this is the last and final episode of season one of still missing i was not able to find out what happened to susan swiddell but I have learned something powerful from her. She has taught me, her at 50 years old, me at 31, that a potent, impressive force can be made, even 30 years later, in a cold case. That we, collectively, as people, you and me, despite our ages, who we are, what we do, despite our boundaries as public police or family, we can still create something new around something supposedly tired, old, and forgotten. I've learned that with accessibility of technology and with the way we deeply integrate our daily lives with social media, combined with the advent of new mediums like podcasting, that the everyday average person has the opportunity to go from spectator or listener to creator, to influencer, to contributor. And you just never know what your office manager might be doing at night and on the weekends. I never knew Susan, never will but I don't think that she would have ever believed that this was the way things would have gone for her case over the past three decades. I think she knows that as humanity, we're better than that. And really, it's she who has never given up on us. Because here she is, 30 years later, and somehow the ball has been put back in the court. The energy is awesome, and the hope is there, and I really don't want people to think so much of 30 years that the number don't get hung up on the number because there is still hope for Sue and you know she's she's out there somewhere and it's just going to take a lot of people to get the answers and get her home if you know anything about what happened to Susan Swiddell or anything that could be relevant please speak up and contact the Washington County Sheriff's Department's tip line at 651-430-7850. Additionally, please help get Susan's story out there 
by going to facebook.com slash stillmissingpodcast and share the post with Susan's photo in it.